1 Peter 3, 17 to 22. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me pull this down. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Okay, now let's uh, pray and ask God to help us turn our hearts to the truth of his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing the truth to us, for giving us scripture to admonish us and encourage us and comfort us. We pray that we would understand and apply your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, we were on verse 20, uh, 19. We covered a couple weeks ago, 20. Helped us understand 19. We claimed that the spirits were the angels in Genesis 6 who crossed a boundary. And this boundary crossing was what invoked God's judgment on the world through the flood. So is that in verse 20? Who who is that? The spirits now imprisoned. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, literally souls, were brought safely through the water. I think we covered that quite thoroughly. And now we want to look at the idea of baptism. And here in this passage in verse 21, some who have a heightened view of baptism, even Luther in some places, interestingly, Luther on 1 Peter 3, 17 on said that it was incomprehensible. He didn't know what it meant. But elsewhere, when he's talking about baptism and that his idea was that baptism saves you, verse 21 became a proof text in that regard, even though elsewhere he said he didn't understand it. I love Luther, but I disagree with him on infant baptism, and I disagree with him on baptismal regeneration. And I think I've mentioned this before. We did some radio on this about uh, Luther's view of baptism. I agree with Luther so much, but I can't hear. But let's look and see what it does say. Corresponding to that, baptism saves you. Let me get down on my PowerPoint here. We covered this. We covered the gospel in verse 18. We covered verse 19. I believe we finished verse 20. Or did we? Is anybody keeping notes? It's been two weeks. They are the spirits that were disobedient. God was patient. In other words, he didn't just wipe out the entire human race, but he gave grace to Noah and instructed him to build the ark, which he did. Eight souls are saved through water. And so the water was an agent of judgment on the wicked and salvation for the righteous. That's a theme throughout the Bible. So that's part of the reason I wanted to do this. You'll find the same idea in the New Testament. When we are baptized, the water stands for death. In that case, the death of our old life and our own sin and whatever. It's all 
buried in the water. And coming out of the water stands for resurrection life and newness of life. Baptism only happens once. And as we showed you before in 1 Corinthians 10, it's symbolic of coming out of Egypt and coming to God on a journey to the promised land. And so the water closed in behind the Israelites when they came on dry ground through the Red Sea out of Egypt. It drowned the Egyptian army. And as I've said before, especially when preaching from 1 Corinthians 10, part of the reason the water closes behind them is to keep them from going back to Egypt. God's not going to open the water and give you dry ground in order to backslide. Okay, so if you're baptized, you need to remember you buried the old life and things are new and it's going to stay that way. So eight souls were saved through water, Noah and his family. Did I, uh, who knows, you maybe don't remember what I said two weeks ago either. It's important that we understand the scripture in its, on its own terms according to the language, the author's meaning, and so on. When we twist things around, we totally miss the point and we have no power. The word wrongly interpreted is not a means of grace. The word understood according to the author's intent and having applications that necessarily follow from the meaning of the author is a means of grace. Now, let me give you an example. In Genesis chapter 6, it says that though all of this wickedness was all around, Noah found grace from God, according to uh, a, a literal translation. Noah found grace from, from God. Now, I took issue with one of the most popular books to be published in the last 20 years, which was The Purpose Driven Life. And one of the reasons I took issue and wrote a whole chapter about this was Rick Warren claims that what it really means is Noah made God smile. Okay, so now what's the difference? Well, is he, is he just taking some poetic li- liberty to make something a little easier to understand? And my contention is that that's exactly, it's almost emblematic or uh, of what's wrong with evangelicalism in general. Okay, what is true that we need is what God does for us, not what we're going to do for God. Okay, it's as if God needed Noah to come along so that God could smile. And it's just flat out false. It's not according to the scripture. It's not the author's meaning. And there's no power or grace in believing that. Okay, and so then this chapter says that we can make God smile, and here's how you do it. Okay, so evangelicalism, little by little, became a how-to, works righteousness, human wisdom, religion. And the idea of grace alone is shuffled to the side. And I would argue vehemently that the issue in Genesis 6 wasn't that Noah made God smile, but that God gave Noah grace. And my dear friends, the only reason we're not getting swept away in the flood of wickedness that surrounds us is that God gave us grace. Not that I somehow learned the secret to make God smile. That may sound sentimental. It might sound romantic. But it's a lie. And... We need some serious re-understanding of going back to Scripture. Now, let's go to verse 21, talk about... Oh, wait, we already did this, didn't we? We did Jude 1, 6 and 7. Commentary, really, on the same incident. The angels didn't keep their domain. 
He kept them in eternal bounds. So these angels that crossed a boundary with the daughters of men were locked up at the time of Noah and kept locked up till now. And they're still locked up. There are other fallen angels. There's demons and wicked spirits. But those particular ones are locked up. That's how Peter understood it. That's how Jude understood it. That's what Second Peter says. That's what Jude says. That's a biblical worldview. Now, people say, well, it seems incongruous. It doesn't seem right to me. The power of God in the scripture is the meaning of the author applied according to logical and necessary applications. Not what seems right to us. Maybe it seems right to us that Noah made God smile. But it has no power. It cannot give us grace and it cannot change our lives. The truth is the truth is the truth. Oh, here's what it said. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness. So I, we covered that. Second Peter says the same thing. I'll go ahead and read this and then we'll move forward here. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, this is Genesis 6, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Notice they're locked up. The judgment hasn't happened yet, the final judgment, but they're held there until the judgment. Okay, but preserved Noah with seven, uh, the preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, another case of boundary crossing to destruction by reducing them to ashes. Notice what it says. I have it highlighted here. Having made them an example. Some pious preachers might say, well, God better judge America or he owes Sodom an apology. I've heard that before. Well, that's totally ignorant of what it says here. No, that, that's what deludes people. They look around, they see prosperity, the stock market going up, and we've got all this boundary crossing after the same manner, all manner of wickedness. That what they are escaping is that this will come under judgment in eternity. The example's already been made. It doesn't mean every single time the same sin happens, fire is going to fall out of heaven. It doesn't say that. And so these preachers are in error, and they may sound pious, but they're teaching falsehood and error to the body of Christ, and I call them to repent. God does not have to bring some sort of fire on the city of San Francisco or whatever we think he should be doing. And he owes no one an apology. He's already made the example. If we don't want to listen, all right, there you go. Do whatever it is you're going to do, but you think there's going to be no judgment? This is called exemplary judgment. So it says, to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So we look about us, and we see the ungodliness being paraded around as if it were righteousness and progress. It grieves our soul, which is only right because that's what happened a lot, according to Second Peter 2. But we need to realize that God is a God of justice. Two things are true. Some may yet repent. Even some of the grossest sinners may repent. And there will be a final judgment. And what happened in both Sodom and in the whole world at the time of Noah were literal historical events that demonstrate God's righteousness. Now, baptism. 1 Peter 3.21. Now, this is back in your mind, back to the context of, of uh, 1 Peter 3. And this prefigured baptism, what? The Noahic flood. The fact that Noah and his family were in the ark, they were saved, the same water that saved them from the wickedness that vexed their souls, brought judgment on those who mocked him. This prefigured baptism, which now saves you. All right, so, so our Lutheran friends will say, see, baptism saves. Baptize your babies. They're on their way to heaven, even if 
as they grow up, they live for the devil and serve the spirit of Antichrist and curse and blaspheme God their entire life. At their funeral, a Lutheran pastor will get up and say, so-and-so was baptized, we know they're in heaven. Oh, yes. I'm not just being melodramatic. I'm telling you what I've seen and heard. That wicked doctrine has condemned many to hell because they're trusting something somebody else did that's not prescribed in Scripture. Now, I would say Luther himself would say that this must be combined with faith. And in some cases, you don't see that. You go to that funeral and you're going to hear about so-and-so was baptized and so they're in heaven. But have, I'm the, have I'm the only one that ever heard that? Everybody has. And it really doesn't matter what kind of life that person had been living or whether they exhibited any kind of faith. Okay, now let's just see what it does say. We are saved. Now, in, white, in prefigured, antitupos is the Greek word. There's the word tupos, type, an antitype. And these are used in various ways in the New Testament. And it would be like the old-fashioned typewriter. There's an impression there. And when, it's, when you strike a key, it strikes the ink in the paper, and it leaves the impression of the letter that you struck. Okay? Type, antitype. Here it says that this would be the antitype or prefigured baptism. What did it prefigure? Well, that those in the water were lost and judged, and so the water would consider, be considered leaving behind the wicked world. Those in the ark are saved. And as the ark is floated up on the water with Noah and his family and the animals that were therein, there brought salvation to those in the ark. Those who are not are judged. So we are saved because we're in the ark and not in the water. That's what it's saying. Now, it isn't just the physical act of baptism because it says not washing off physical dirt. Okay, so it's not just a matter of washing. It's a matter of faith in the finished work of Christ signified in baptism. Very important. I'm saying that baptism is a means of grace, and that's where some of my evangelical friends start getting really nervous. I was just talking to... Brian about that as we were coming in uh, together to church. Some have even said to me, well, I won't believe, I won't use means of grace because it sounds Lutheran. Well, the fact is because we don't have the terminology or the concept, spiritual disciplines, human wisdom, marriage and family therapy, practices that are not ordained by God, the failure to understand what's accessible, was promised, was provided by God compared to just general obedience to commands of God. All of this is wrecking havoc in the church. And it's time we got our theology correct and not just react to what somebody else had wrong. I believe that God has provided means of grace and that baptism is one of them. But I'm not Lutheran. And I don't mean any disrespect to Luther himself. I, I quote him on the radio a lot. I love reading Luther. Yes. Hold on. Brian, you should make a center aisle when you set things up. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you talk to the guy that set up the chairs? Oh. Bob, I love the fact that you're pointing out that the resurrection is the finished work of Christ because the resurrection is what they would call an autonomy or all of the work of Christ. The one word kind of stands for his entire work. Amen. I think you're right in pointing that out. And let me just give another verse that kind of corroborates that. This is uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, where Paul says, he was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our... 
justification, but it should be rendered for our justification. The New American Standard is, I think, has a mistranslation there, but uh -huh. raised for our justification. So I agree. there the resurrection is synonymous for the entirety of right. his work. And what we're saying here in 1 Peter 3, well, which is a very gospel-centric, uh, Eric and I both preach the gospel from 1 Peter 3.18, but this proclaiming proclamation that was made to the spirits in prison happened after the resurrection. The key issue here is the resurrection. So here it says, through the resurrection, good point, Eric. It says in Romans 6.4, Romans 6.4, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Remember the thing with Noah? Death is what was happening in the water. Life is being in the ark. Okay, so we were buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead, there's that point, through the glory of God, so we too might walk in newness of life, And so there's this death, burial, and resurrection typified, signified, illustrated by baptism. And one might say, and the early church went astray almost immediately on this point. They thought that if they sinned after they were baptized, they'd be damned to hell. And the fear was so great that they tried to figure out just before they were going to die to get somebody in to baptize them. Because they thought, maybe I could hold out for an hour or two without sinning. <laughs> okay. And, if, of course, if you fell off your horse and broke your neck, I guess, you, what are you going to do? All right. That's not the point. And I don't know how far we'll get today. But I hit the mother load of research today, this week, and trying to get ahead here. So for you and this week and next, I looked up remember uh, versus forget. And not only looked it up all the way through the New Testament, I got the Greek words and went back in the Septuagint Old Testament. Deuteronomy is full of this. You can almost teach the gospel right out of Deuteronomy. If you didn't do anything else. The reason we need to be baptized is that we might remember. And when Paul discusses baptism to churches that are going into air or to keep them from going into air, he's really calling them to remember. I'll show you that uh, later if we get that far in, in Romans 6, 3. Uh, Brian. We take communion. The reason for that is also to remember. Amen. And my question is then, why would it be, it's okay to take communion repetitively, which we happen to do it once a month, but if we did it every day, there would be no problem with that. Why is it, why do people only then get baptized normally one time? We don't because continue. Because of the type. Because of the type, it wouldn't be right to be baptized more than once. Because you only go through the Red Sea once. Okay. You go through the Red Sea, it drowns the Egyptian army. It closes so you can't go back. Remember later they wanted to? They got cold feet of unbelief. So well, we don't want to go into promised land. Let's go back to Egypt. Well, that'd be even harder. Who's going to open the Red Sea for them this time? Okay, better to go fight the giants. And, uh, and that's the type that Christ was there, buried once in the tomb and rose once and ascended into heaven. And so to do it more than once would be to break the type. Now, why the Lord's Supper, however often, and it doesn't specify, it says as often as you do this, do this remembrance of me. Because they drank from the rock and ate the spiritual food constantly, didn't they? So the rock with the water, spiritual drink, 1 Corinthians 10, the manna, spiritual food, 1 Corinthians 10, that was ongoing. 
but going through the Red Sea was once. So all that we need to be able to do is to have someone call us to remember we are baptized. And that has a power for us. It has motivational power. It has informative power concerning the gospel itself. And Paul uses that way in Colossians, in Romans, and in Galatians, Galatians 3.27. You were baptized. What was he trying to prove? Therefore, you're all one in Christ. You're like Noah and his family in the ark. Rich. Yeah, I think what's interesting to simplify, to simplify, I think the essence of the means of grace is a narrow, scientific, specific way in which God, bottom line, gets glory, correct? I mean, this is how God gets glory, glory, through the means of grace. In other words, to go back to what you're saying before, hey, get baptized and you're saved. You know, I've heard that before. There's this kid back in high school who was horrible kid, and somebody shot him in the head. Um, he went to my church, by the way, and they got together. The elders didn't said, well, this guy accepted Jesus Christ when he was at Trout Lake Camp, so therefore he's saved. But I think, I think the essence of what man thinks is if I do A, B, C, or don't do X, Y, Z, I'm saved because it's fair. But God says, no, it's my way and my terms through a means of grace, and in this, yeah. I get glorified. Now, uh, Noah made God smile, right? Or that's what uh, that guy said, your your friend... Uh, Rick Warren. Rick Warren, yeah. Hey, Noah made My God friend. smile. Is he your friend, too? <laughs> what, does, what does make God smile? His son. He glories in his yeah, son, exactly. Jesus Christ. In that's fact, where he gets his glory. John, that the son always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. So and we so glorify we God in Christ. in Christ, in Christ. But we're, we're not going to be in Christ just because we have warm, sentimental feelings invoked by reading the purpose-driven life. Yeah. That doesn't make anybody in Christ. So it's by grace, and it's to the glory of God alone. I wanted to quote Thomas Schreiner, who, uh, oh boy, his commentary is so good on Galatians, and it's so good on Peter. He says this on this verse. On this verse, the simplest interpretation of Shriner is to be preferred. Any notion that baptism is inherently saving is ruled out, for the point is not that the water itself magically cleanses. Water removes dirt from the skin, but baptism does not save simply because someone's been submerged under the water. The statement about the removal of dirt is made so the believers will not understand baptism mechanically or superficially. They must attend to what is really happening in baptism. So, therefore, I would suggest reading 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 6 and Colossians 2. And faith is that which we have that brings us to God. Now, notice it says, the pledge of a good conscience. I have something here. I'll have somebody read this just to get some more participation. Um, well, Brian, you're sitting right. You rich? I don't have my Bible in stack there. But okay, Rich, could you be looking up Hebrews 10, 21, and 22? Maybe you should all turn to that. This is very important. The book of Hebrews should be required study for all Christians. I guess it really is. <laughs> so poorly understood and so powerful if we understand Hebrews for what it's saying. Hebrews ten twenty one and 22? Yes, please read that. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So here's the same concepts we see in 1 Peter 3.21. The, the washing with pure water would be baptism understood in faith according to God's ordination. The cleansing of the heart, the pledge of a good conscience, is the internal work that God does. Okay? The cleansing, which is a theme in Hebrews... In the Old Testament, they had to go through ceremonial cleansing over and over and over and over, endlessly. 
You can study that in the book of Leviticus. Not only the priests, but the people had their own times where they became unclean and had to go follow the prescribed procedure to get clean. And ordinary life made them unclean. But what we have in Hebrews is what William Lane calls decisive purgation. Once for all, the blood of Jesus is sprinkled on our hearts to cleanse our consciences, not just the outer person. And therefore, there's a decisive work. And it's once for all, but it has daily implications and applications. So it's not magical, it's not mechanical, but it's rooted in the resurrection of Christ. Now, according to Hebrews, Jesus poured his blood in the heavenly sanctuary on the heavenly ark with the heavenly mercy seat. And that this brings about our inner cleansing once for all, hapax, once for all. Do you, Matt, can you just think about this? This guts religious leaders of their ability to abuse people. They can't say you have to keep coming back and giving us money. You have to come back and say this or do that or say the magic word or go through the ceremony that we made up. It's all been done once for all. There's nothing to sell. There's no secret to be revealed by some modern-day revelator. Oh, yeah, that sells books. You bet it does. The secret to, and then you fill in the blank. Well, you know before you buy the book, it's a false book. There's only what's revealed and what's not revealed, and what not revealed are the secret things that belong to God. So don't waste your money. The book is false. I don't care who wrote it. There's no secret. And what is secret is forbidden. It's called occult. What's revealed is not secret. We can study it in Scripture. That doesn't mean somebody can't write a book about Hebrews and explain the once-for-all nature of the shed blood. It's not really a secret, though. It's revealed. Don't you love this? The pledge of a good conscience. You know what else is true if you have a good conscience? Not that you're sinless, but the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. We don't have to buy something. We don't have to jump through some human religious works. Christ did it all once for all. Let's go to the last verse here. Verse 22. I absolutely have to get to 2 Peter 3 today who is at the right hand of God. Now, again, we're talking about the resurrection. Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, raised on the third day, appeared to many witnesses, bodily ascended into heaven. Well, I'll read about that here in a bit. And here, in this context where it talks about preaching to the imprisoned spirits, who's at the right hand of God. This is an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1 having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, here's another way of discussing evil spiritual powers. And it's reemphasized here. The people in Asia Minor feared these spiritual powers. They were deathly afraid of them. They thought they were going to have bad fate because they forgot to placate some deity or some spirit, or some angel. The stoichia, exactly, Colossians, and Galatians. And then they're called authorities and powers in the book of Ephesians. When it talks about Christ being at the right hand far above all powers, it says that in Ephesians to assure the Ephesians in Asia Minor that they were safe in Christ and that the bad fate wasn't going to come and get them. We live in a pagan world in a pagan society with paganism all around us. I'm preparing to write an article on that, hopefully this next week. The prevailing worldview of just about everybody you and I know is neo-paganism. Whether they go to church or do not go to church. Whatever they may do, 
they're most likely neo-pagan. Why? Well, thinking long and hard about this article, I decided to start with the alternative to paganism, which is a biblical worldview. Because paganism started in the Garden of Eden when Satan convinced Eve and then Adam to not listen to God's word. The thing that is our firewall against paganism and a pagan worldview is the word of God. In what sense? Because God has spoken. If God hadn't spoken to anybody, then all pagans would be equal. We could think Pele, isn't it? Diane, you were there in Hawaii. Remember that? Was it Pele? Pele's mad because somebody took a little bit of volcano. It's not a little bit of rock. Okay, we, we went to... Uh, I thought Pele was a soccer player. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was a false deity. And so, I mean, if you're ever in Hawaii, uh, we were there in the year 2000, went up there to, to the volcanoes, the national park, and they have this huge law saying you can't take one little bit of volcanic rock with you. Well, if you've ever been in Hawaii, that's all they've got. <laughs> that's like saying if you go to the Sahara Desert, you better not take a little vial of sand. Or if you go to Iowa, you can't have any black dirt. And why? Because they're superstitious. Pele is angry. That's her rock. And and retribution and fire will come upon anybody that doesn't do homage to the goddess. Well, why is that false? Well, if you're pagan, it's just as good as anybody else's idea. Or Kali in India or the nature goddesses of any particular society. Paganism is what humans are like with no word from the true creator God. And so they fish around. Uh, Let me give you an illustration. Certainly Job is written from a perspective of a biblical worldview. But until God comes on the scene, Job and his comforters are essentially pagan. They hadn't heard anything directly from God, so they're arguing about God, what he's like. When God comes on the scene, they become unpagan. Now they know, and that's what Job said, I've heard of thee, now I've seen thee. Now I've heard. Okay, and now we know what's true and what isn't true. So why is neo-paganism the prevailing worldview of just about everybody around us? Because... Even the churches aren't teaching the word of God with clarity and authority and power. So if you sit in a church with happy talk, like Robert Schuller type, if you're old enough to remember him, uh, the be happy attitudes, oh, happy talk, and we can be nice, and we can have a good life, your best life now. Yeah, Joel Steen would be the latest Robert Schuller, or even Rick Warren. Noah made God smile. What's wrong with that? You're turning your church into pagans because they don't know what God said. God didn't say Noah had some intrinsic good in Noah that made God smile. Noah gives God what God wouldn't have otherwise. No, it's about God giving us by grace what we wouldn't have otherwise. So you think, oh, well, the people love that. We did marketing research. We have a composite person called Saddleback Sam. We know he, what he wants to hear. There's even a picture of him in Warren's first book. And Saddleback Sam doesn't want to hear about fire and brimstone and grace and redemption and repentance. He wants to hear about making God smile. So you take the churches across the board and then everything else that's already pagan, and you just turn a whole generation into pa- functional pagans. And so then you... Uh, I, I like to watch the news, and my favorite channel is Fox News. But when you listen to the people talking, they're functional pagans as well. The other day, they were talking about astrology. Oh, yeah, that's very important. You know, Mars is doing it. What? That's pagan. Or they're talking about yoga. Oh, yeah, that's great. I love that. Now, that's the conservatives. Pagan. Because there's no word 
from God being taught. And so you might be a liberal pagan or a conservative pagan, but you're still a pagan. Somebody comes around with yoga, great. Astrology, oh yeah, what's it say? What's going to happen to me today? Pagan. But we have God who was in Christ reconciling sinners to himself who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God, and who was raised from the dead on the third day, bodily ascended to heaven. This is in Acts 1, if you want to jot this down, Acts 1, 9 through 11, talking about Christ, and he's the speaker. Uh, um, no, he's not. This was Luke telling us what happened. And Excuse me. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. The implication is they were angels. And they said, they also said, verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come again in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. Jesus will return in uh, with the clouds, visibly and bodily. That's ground zero for a biblical worldview. You've got to know the person and work of Christ. Otherwise, anything goes, anything seems reasonable. And we're just pagan. If we don't remember what God did, we'll build a golden calf. Okay? Now, I'm going to go a little further into Jude, and then we'll go to 2 Peter 3. This is also Jude, but now I'm going later in Jude. And I want to accentuate what's necessary for us not to be pagan. Okay? Now, it talks about all of the wickedness going on in Jude earlier, including what happened in the time of Noah and the false teachers that were worming their way into the church and so on. But it says this in Jude 1, 17 and 18. But you, beloved, ought to remember. Means of grace is about remembering. Jot that down. Pay attention to it. Remember what? the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Mockers following lusts. Where did this come from? The apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ spoke for God. As God and with God, he was from eternity, came and spoke the words of God. In these last days, God has spoken through his Son, who is the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Here it says, his apostles spoke for God. He appointed apostles. They were authoritative. They spoke the words of God, like Moses and the prophets did in the Old Testament. All of this is in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. The way we don't become pagan is to remember the words that were spoken beforehand. These words must be on our lips. They must be taught from our pulpits. We must bring out valid implications and applications. And the more we teach authoritatively, clearly, with perspective and authority, the very words of God that we know are from God, the less pagan we'll be. And the less we'll go around banging our head against the pagan wall because paganism makes absolutely no sense. It's stupid. It's absurd. And it'll lead to poverty, immorality, misery, and every other thing under the sun. But we need a Christian worldview. And we won't get it unless the word is taught clearly and with according to the author's intent. 
and unless our applications are logically and necessarily connected to the meaning of the author. Notice that the mockers come because they don't remember the words of the Lord. The mockers follow their own ungodly lusts. They don't listen to God. That's the world we live in. Aha, I told you we'd get here. 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Now we're really getting into the heart and soul of what means of grace is all about. I'm hoping I'm setting the table for you adequately. I'm passionate about this. And uh, I thank God that he kept me here alive to still be teaching this. To Peter 3, 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by by way of reminder that you should remember, notice reminder, remember, it's our theme, what? The word spoken beforehand That's like it says in Jude 1, as we just quoted beforehand, by the holy prophets, I believe that's the Old Testament writers, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So Jesus' apostles speak his words to us. The Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance the things that Jesus taught, and they teach us. There's your authoritative body of material, the New Testament and the Old Testament which was the Old Testament prophets. And the reason that Peter is writing is to stir up their mind. Here's where we go astray. I can't give you a better better illustration. This is not pick on Rick Warren Day, although maybe I'm doing it. But one of the things that I objected to was the claim that Rick Warren said, and I quote him, the last thing most Christians need is another Bible study. Because they're not doing half of what they already know. That reveals to me more than a stupid statement. It reveals to me a pagan worldview. And then he uses this owner's manual idea as his theory of the Bible. Not that Christ and his apostles spoke authoritative words from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it brings grace to us through the Holy Spirit who indwells us, but that it's a manual, and if you just follow the how-to steps, you'll solve your problems. So now we don't have means of grace, we have how-to. You show me how, I'll go do it, and that's good enough for me. I don't need God to do any grace in my life. I'm going to make him smile. This is absurd. Absolutely absurd. We don't need another Bible study till we do what we already heard. And so it's the same backwards theology we had with Noah. So we do everything God commanded, and when we do, then maybe we get to learn a little more Bible. As if it was all about mental cognition and then using human ability to go do whatever it is. As if we could change our our own heart and mind by just taking action. Everything is about pulling on your bootstraps. I'm saying that Rick Warren is teaching an ungodly and unbiblical doctrine that has no power to change lives. It's not a means of grace, and it shows a fundamental misunderstanding of Christianity itself that will have consequences, and sure enough, it did. When Chris Roseborough and I were out there They were talking about the peace plan and the three-legged stool. Government, business, and church, or religion, because he wanted to include Muslims, are going to make a stool that's going to solve the world's problems. Okay, if we believe in means of grace, what does government got to do with it? What does business have to do with it? What do we have that nobody else has? The words of Jesus Christ and his apostles and the prophets. That's what we have. That's means of grace. And so what the Bible teaches us, let's look at this, stirring up your sincere mind. Now he says this elsewhere in 2 Peter. 
It's not that you don't know these things. It isn't that once you know something, then don't ever teach it to anybody again. We already got that figured out. Now let's go to something we don't already know. And so then we, we become morbid and we start looking for things that we, secrets in the Bible that aren't there anyhow. We don't believe that what God said is the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in our lives to change us. You know these things. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Why do we preach the gospel every Sunday? We all know it. You don't think that the gospel itself has power to change us, to impact us, to remind us of what God did for us so that we don't go running around out there in the world looking for answers? Luann, make sure it turns green. Green. Well, I was just thinking when you were talking about um, the self-help things. You know, our biggest problem is after the garden, the fall, we lost access to God. And so that's our biggest thing is to obtain that access again. You know, how do we get access to God? And when he set up the old covenant and the temple system, you know, there were kind of three areas to the temple and the people could not go into the holy place or the holy of holies where God was and where the veil was. And the high priest had to offer these sacrifices mm-hmm. year after year, etc., because it didn't, it didn't remove sin. It only covered sin. Mm-hmm. So the people knew full well that they, like you were saying before, you know, an hour later they were sinning yep. and it was a constant reminder to see these sacrifices. And then when the new covenant came, and Christ offered himself once for all, it's kind of like he took us by the hand at the entrance to that old temple, and he walks us through where the, the, he walks us through where the animals were sacrificed, where the priests would go, and then into even the Holy of Holies, and now we have access to God again. Exactly. And so when we try to, you know, add to that, to anything where we have to do something or to make our life more satisfying, you know, we're taking away from Christ, taking us by the hand through that temple system back into the access of God. Amen. And it's just, it's so um, blasphemous, I guess. It is. Remember the, the curtain was torn in two from the top down, making access to God. And that's what Hebrews is about. And one of the means of grace, I believe, is prayer. And it says so much in Hebrews 4 that we can find grace and mercy in our time of need at the throne of grace. We have access to our high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. So what are we to do? To be reminded? To remember? To remember what? What God said. And someone might come along with their human wisdom and say, well, we already know all this. Tell us something we hadn't already heard. If I hear that, then I realize, alas, such a person doesn't understand the gospel or the working of God. If you get tired of what God said, you'll start longing for the golden calf. People are willing to devote themselves to absurdity rather than to hear what God said. Oh, Mars is in this constellation, though, therefore. It's absurd. God created the stars. We can know what the creator of the stars meant. We don't need to go to the stars trying to divine up information. And what we end up with is just utter absurdity. I've maybe given you this illustration, but... um, about six blocks from our house is a church called Lutheran Church of the Reformation, ironically. The whole front yard is full of weeds and scrub trees and thistles, tumbleweeds. And they had put a sign up a few years ago saying, Prairie Grass Restoration Project. And the whole thing grew to weeds because they have a pagan worldview. They don't believe in Luther or the Reformation. They believe in paganism. Therefore, the creation takes care of us. We don't take care of it. That would be a sin. The earth goddess is there around to take care of us. The earth goddess doesn't care about you. 
And so the scrub trees, the weeds, all the burrs and stuff are growing there. And they have no parking. It's all full of weeds. And I don't know how they're going to get rid of those. I mean, it would take a brush hog to cut that all down. Well, okay, now let me just show you how absurd paganism is because they don't have the words of God. So I see that prairie grass restoration is a bunch of weeds. They don't believe the Bible because it's said in there from the sweat of your brow, you'll till and keep the ground, pull out the thistles. Well, they don't want to pull out their thistles, so they seed St. Louis Park with thistles because they're too lazy to pull them out. <laughs> Blowing all over town. So then everybody else has to get 2,4-D because otherwise thistles grow in your yard. <laughs> so then I come over here to the health center where I get my medical help, and they have a beautiful tended garden, which I believe is more of a biblical worldview. But listen to the whole story. It's absolutely beautiful with flowers and shrubs and a, and a way to walk through it, enjoy it, little waterfalls. And you work your way around the path to the, behind the Meadowbrook Clinic over there. And one time I was sitting there getting an infusion right by that garden. And in the, at the end of the path is a labyrinth. And people come and walk around, and then when they get to the middle, supposedly the earth goddess comes down or something. And so there's paganism. Now, look at the absurdity. You can have thistles and trees and shrub and garbage, or you can have a beautiful garden with a labyrinth. They're both equally pagan. One time I was sitting there waiting to see the nurse, and Another nurse came by and said, well, you got some time. Why don't you go, up, soak, go out and soak up some zen? <laughs> I'm sitting here studying my Greek Bible. <clears throat> I, said, I think I'll study this Bible here. All right. There are our options. And it may seem strange to you that I'm saying that so-called evangelical churches that preach a watered-down message of human wisdom are just as pagan as the thistles and the labyrinths. Some of them have labyrinths in their practices. It's absurd. Now, what we have, my dear friends, is something to be reminded of. And I promise you that if you can't stand being reminded of the gospel, you'll get real sick of the preaching around here. You won't want to hear Eric, and you won't want to hear me, and you won't want to hear anybody else. In fact, you won't even want to talk to each other <laughs> because you'll hear the gospel. <laughs> but we don't... Can I see that verse real quick? Uh, yes, uh, grab that from Brian. Second Thessalonians, uh, it says, They did not receive a love of the truth so that they might be saved, and for this reason God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Yeah. Exactly. Second Thessalonians chapter two, something. Yeah. No, that was in Romans one, wasn't it? Maybe it's in two places. That could be. Strong delusion. Okay. Do you understand? So I'm hoping now that we're starting to put a dent in the whole concept, so that we can get it of means of grace. Now, what I'm going to do next week, we're going to continue on 2 Peter 3, but we're going to do a lot of Old Testament. So bring your scriptures. And I want to show you how the same, well, the same Greek word for in, only in the Septuagint is used in the Old Testament over and over and over again. Remember, 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 remember. Or, lest you forget, lest you forget, lest you forget. And on the surface, it seems absurd. Oh, how could we forget God brought us out of Egypt? They did. How can we get, forget the promise of God that he's going to give us the promised land? They did. Remember. Well, that's why it's here. We're no different. Okay, we need to be reminded. And so one of the most important functions of means of grace is to remind us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us of these things through your holy apostles. 
May our hearts be turned to you so that we not would not believe fables and myths and pagan foolishness, but we, may we believe only what's revealed in Scripture. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll start on this slide next Sunday. Well, thank you. 